I was just thinking one of the first public performances I ever did was in fifth grade. I lip synced to the song Celebration. <laughs> it was like a, a lot of schools coming together to do like obstacle courses and sing and dance and um, it was very joyous. I was really scared before I went out there and then just sang my heart out <laughs> with other people. So um, I'm starting this talk, I've been contemplating inspiration, and in that moment I took inspiration from that 11-year-old girl that was so thrilled to be singing in front of a large group of people. Inspiration, where do we find it and how do we gather stability from it? Where do you find it? sitting here right now, can you take a moment and think about what inspired you this morning to come here? Maybe it wasn't words, maybe it was just a body sensation. When you think about inspiration, is it related to the human realm or otherwise? Humans, to me, are complicated, so I often look to nature for inspiration, which is easy to do at the monastery, our beautiful gardens and grounds. But even in a city, can you look out your window and find inspiration from the nobility of a single tree just standing, just being present? This time of year, the bees are particularly industrious, gathering the last bits of nectar and pollen. Are you inspired by their efforts? The swallows have left. I was gone for a week doing practice elsewhere, and during that week, our swallow family departed. I think they go all the way to South America. And over the summer, we watch them, the parents just completely selflessly take care of their young, just everything they've got, they put into keeping those adorable little swallow babies alive. I find great inspiration from that. What we find inspiration in will be the direction that we orient our lives. Is the brilliant blue sky awe-inspiring when you drove here? It's a beautiful drive. And how do we carry that awe? I think that's a big question for me, at least, and for lots of people I talk to. How do you hold that awe and really let it sink in and really let it direct the way we live our lives? How do we let that awe shape us? When I look to the human realm for inspiration, I notice that I'm drawn towards those that are more still. I think this is partially in response to the speed of our modern lives. But what I find inspiring in another person is their ability to be still, 
be still with inactivity. So this doesn't mean they're not busy. It doesn't mean they're not putting together a large meal or taking care of a garden or taking care of a family. But it's a person that doesn't need to reach for the phone or the book or the conversation. The person that can just be with inactivity and let that be enough. So as I was pondering this, I realized what I'm inspired by is a quiet mind. And that mind demonstrates in itself in how the person is engaged with activity. So when a person is busy in the kitchen and just flowing with the activity of the kitchen, their mind isn't being tossed from left to right, tempest-tossed with aversion and clinging. One thing happens, it's just flowing. They're part of the flow. And a person like this can really change a whole scene. A person just standing very calmly, present, at ease in a line in an airport or in the grocery store. Can really feel it and be inspired by it. There's an attitude in that kind of presence, an attitude of yes. Like, yes, I am here and whatever is happening is what I'm doing. There is a line, and I think it's in the Lotus Sutra, but I wasn't totally sure. I think the Lotus Sutra about how 10,000 or a million or infinite numbers of Buddhas can be dancing their hearts out in front of you, doing their very best, singing the song of awakening. But it means nothing unless we're present with it. And even when we're present with it, we still have to walk that path with our own two feet. So infinite Buddhas can be dancing before us, and yet it's my own practice that carries me forward. So while it's important to find inspiration in others, we also learn, sometimes through great disappointment, that we cannot rely on others to maintain our own practice life. It's important to have teachers and friends that show us the path of goodness. And all things, all humans, all the trees will fall, the humans will are, want to have errors. So we really have to find it in ourselves. And our teachers and friends can only take us so far. And as far as the 10,000 Buddhas dancing before us goes, I'm pretty sure that's actually what's happening all the time. That everything is calling us. It's all Buddhas. And that's easy to say and a little bit dangerous to say. So that's just, an in, that's just a feeling I have. And I, I miss it. I'm not with it all the time. So we'll go back to an attitude of yes. This attitude of yes has been a major koan for me living at a Zen monastery where I've been almost all of the positions here after eight years, groundskeeper, 
Gardner, Tenzo, Zenworks, hospitality, maintenance. The question I always carry forward is, um, what mind am I taking into all this activity? What mind is unchanging? I'm very familiar with aversion, with aversive mind, with preferential mind, with very familiar with impatience and the habitual tendency to crave what's next, to imagine like, oh, this would be good, but this is wrong, to crave more comfort, or as Jogan often says, a more, something more suitable to my sensibilities. <laughs> <laughs> but our practice invites us to live in such a way that we are not at the mercy of our habitual responses to circumstance. And there are many levels to this. When I'm cooking in our kitchen, I can say, oh, poor me, stuck in this windowless kitchen. I can just complain, oh, I'm missing the Dharma talk. Oh, I'm, this is happening. Oh, this other person gets to do whatever they're doing. Or I can turn that and say, oh, it's, I'm giving my life to offer food to people. How wonderful. How wonderful it is that I'm in this kitchen that has six different kinds of vinegar and oils and like a whole giant cupboard full of gluten-free flowers if I so wanted them. The abundance is, um, yeah, it's unspeakable almost. So I have that, that choice more and more. I can choose to orient the mind towards something more positive. I'm not just like completely enmeshed in like, oh, bad, and that is me, and that is actually what's happening. I see that there is more possibility, more fluidity. We can choose to turn towards the positive. We can also not turn. And that's part of our practice that's really important too. Can cultivate positivity and we cultivate the undifferentiated mind, the mind that doesn't turn towards preferences, that doesn't turn towards this is good and this is bad. So creating a stable foundation, knowing the place of undifferentiated presence makes it possible to hold a larger space for all the myriad activities of the human mind to arise. So I might be having a really hard time in the kitchen. I might also see the wonders of the abundance. And I also have space to see both of them dancing, arising, falling away. And I don't need to make a big fuss over it. It's just part of the dance. So we may become overwhelmed with aversion or desire, but whatever it is that comes up can be held in this open space, this undifferentiated space, the space that um, is not contingent on circumstance, because the circumstances of our lives are, as you probably have noticed, always going to change. We notice it, but somehow, like the expectation for things not to change, at least in my experience, continues. But that is where we begin to have choice. Emotions come and go, and if I'm not completely bound up in them, believing them to be me and my whole experience, 
then I have more of a choice in how I respond to them. I'm not saying don't be angry. I'm not saying don't have a hard time. I'm just seeing it for what it is as an arising and a falling away. And then I can say, oh, I need, I'm, this anger actually like has all these underlayers and I'm gonna hopefully respond the best way that I can and step forward into my life, continue to step forward. So creating a foundation of presence. Many years ago, I read a book by John Tarrant, and the introduction really stuck with me. He talked about um, his, his kind of turning moment when he really dove into practice. He was watching a sunset and noticed that he couldn't actually be present for the sunset. It was glorious. So it had all the perfect components to make up the best sunset you could see, and yet he was dissatisfied. He couldn't really be present for his life. He was thinking about dinner, thinking about, oh, it's gonna end and I'll be disappointed and all the things that go with clinging and aversion. And he really wanted to just be with the sky, to merge with the experience of beauty of a sky changing into night. I know this really well, actually, living here in particular. I live um, out by the garden in a little house, and I'm often walking out there. The weather is perfect. Chosen's flowers are in full bloom. There's little bees around. Um, I live in a great community, and yet I can't, I see myself not able to expand beyond my own orbit. Me and my suffering cloud over the enormous beauty that I'm surrounded by. <clears throat> Inspiration comes in all forms. So seeing how I'm clouded can be great inspiration. Seeing that the world is actually beautiful and I'm not really being able to be present with it is great inspiration for practice. And inspiration can carry us only so far. So we create a stable foundation of presence. We get to know the undifferentiated mind. This is a place where inspiration can actually be held and actualized. This takes qualities like determination, faith and focus. Creating a stable foundation of presence happens in the zendo. We still the body, we watch what arises, we quiet the mind. And it also requires that we clean up our personal lives. We did fusatsu ceremony last night, which is um, a ceremony of repentance and bowing and taking of um, refuges, reciting the Buddhist precepts, and also taking a moment to atone for anything that we might feel is hanging in our heart. And this is a really important building block to living a generous and equanimous life. I know when I've gone through tumultuous times with relationships or whatever was happening, to sit down on the cushion and actually expect to quiet my mind was 
not really possible. And that just happens, that's how human life goes. But if we can do the best we can to really um, turn towards living a life with the precepts as a guide, our life will actually be a lot easier, it seems. And this um, doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you just decide that and then suddenly we find the groove and stay in it. We continue to kind of move too rigid, too loose, and continue to find our way with it. Another essential factor in the stable foundation of presence that can help our practice even in the most difficult times is concentration, the ability to stay. Recently in a Dharma talk, Jogan explained that while we may have many insights into the nature of our life, the nature of mind, if we cannot hold them, if we do not have a stable, concentrated mind, these insights are much more difficult to integrate and will likely, likely get lost in the jumble of emotions, desires, aversions, and preferences. Concentration is an essential part of a meditation practice. To be able to sit down and direct the mind to an intended object and then get it to stay, to actually stay put on breath, sound, feeling of the hands, is a necessary precursor to deeper states of meditative absorption. By training our concentration, we make the mind serviceable, pliable, and more capable of responding flexibly, flexibly to the inevitable slings and arrows of our life. The more we sit, the more we notice how much our attention jumps from thing to thing. And we don't actually know what's going to come next. It's mysterious. We just, the mind is kind of like, ee, all around. <laughs> and that Chosen's been talking about this in the morning. It usually falls into three very general categories, fantasy, memories, or future thinking. It can be really helpful to have some awareness of where the mind goes. So we sit down and we learn to concentrate to still the mind and make it serviceable. And I like the word serviceable because it's easy to kind of feel like this is a self-centered practice, but when we use that word in terms of concentration, serviceable to ourselves and also to all the people that we share our life with. Compassion is the activity of wisdom. When we sit in quiet the mind, often using concentration as a tool, wisdom naturally arises, and from that wisdom, compassionate action. There are many factors to learning to concentrate, and faith is undoubtedly important. So just like the kitchen example I used earlier, it's really important to be positive about this practice. The faith I'm talking about right now, at least, is believing in your own ability to do this. And I think it's particularly hard these days with cell phones and media and news streams and things. Like, we're really fragmented. 
So we really need to believe that we can sit down and concentrate, that we can set all of that aside. So believing in your ability um, partly has to do with really facing the inner critic, noticing what you might say to yourself. We say things to ourselves that we would never say to a friend, is something Chosen often says, and that's good to recognize. What if your friend said to you, I start each meditation period doubtful and full of criticism from my practice? What advice would you give that friend? And can you give that advice to yourself? Would you really say, yeah, that's a great way to start. That'll get you far. <laughs> so starting positive. If I'm really, you know, we go through different phases. If I'm really having a hard time with the inner critic, I might um, turn to generos or um, gratitude practice. It's really helpful. It's a really nice anecdote. And that's just a practice of replacing, like, okay, when I end a period, I notice I have this surge of negativity about how my practice with went. So I might replace that with um, gratitude, like simple things. Oh, it's so nice that I have these warm clothes and it's so nice I'm sitting with this friendly community and just quickly insert those things before the mind has time to doubt you, <laughs> before it has time to judge. Zen master Dai Hung Sinim says this, which I've read many times. I think it must be an important teaching for me at least. Be very careful about these two points. A negative outlook and a tendency to criticize others or yourself will do more harm to your spiritual path than just about anything else. Concentration needs a good foundation. The mind likes to have logical explanations. When there are worlds within worlds found on the internet, kitchens, gardens, families, works, just life in general, why should we sit down and meditate? There is so much world to think about more and more. We have access to more and more world. <laughs> why should we spend time focused only on the sensation of our hands? Perhaps each person has their own flavor of answering this question. And I think it's important to, from time to time to go back and look at that, to really reassess and reaffirm, hopefully, <laughs> your reason for coming to practice and why that's important. One reason I found with concentration practices, it feels good. A scattered mind is very anxiety producing. I've often experienced fear of my own mind, my inability to direct it. I think this is Borges. Borges, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Borges. Yeah, yeah. In our dreams, images represent the sensations we think they cause, says Borges. We do not feel horror because we are threatened by a sphinx. We dream of a sphinx in order to explain the horror we feel. In our dreams, images represent the sensations we think they cause. 
We do not feel horror because we are threatened by a sphinx. We dream of a sphinx in order to explain the horror that we feel. I was recently camping and I woke up in the middle of the night to a loud sounds, crackling branches and things. And I saw that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't all that far from other people and it was very likely a deer, but still the mind came up with all these like, what's happening? Am I safe? Should I get out? What's going on? And I saw that it was what I was afraid of was the mind just continuing that, just being so insistent on being afraid. And my, and my inability to control that. And I saw that my concentration practice was very helpful in that moment of like, oh, I can just return to the breath and feel these sensations and kind of take this fear and hold it with this foundation of a stable, concentrated mind. You remind in, in these woods, at least, sometimes I'll hear like, and I'm like, oh my God, it's something huge. And then you turn the corner and it's this little towhee that's just like looking for grubs. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one that <laughs> decides it's a giant monster. <laughs> so we begin to learn to attend to an object, wholly or partially, training the mind to stay. When we train the mind to stay, we can touch in with what inspires us, what can turn we can turn towards it and let that be the orientation of our lives. We cultivate determination and concentration to support our practice. As we practice, we cultivate the landscape of the mind, preparing the soil of the mind for the activity of a lively, compassionate life. We need to be interested in this process of transformation and cultivation in order to maintain it. When we are inspired, we are interested, and interest helps us sit up straight and keeps our practice going, helping us return to the cushion in the good times and also in the most difficult times. Chosen often says we sit in the good times so that we're ready for the more challenging times. Actually, sitting in the good times can be more challenging than like when it's hard. You're like, oh my God, I really need to sit. <laughs> We are, or I am at least, very interested in my own personal life. I can watch that. I can be very interested in getting what I want, making sure I'm comfortable, interested in trying to be right, trying to be liked. So interest is already present. You can maybe tune into that, like the kind of self-referential interest. My self-referential mind is very interested in my successes and failures. And what I'm saying is that there's this possibility of the interest is there, we just kind of shift it a little bit. When we cultivate interest for awakening and towards practice, we are turning that same energy that is usually deeply and firmly self-referential onto the vast and mysterious territories of mind with the capital M. As Dogen says, other universes lie in all quarters. It is so not only with ourselves, but also right here and in a single drop of water. So let's be interested in our lives. Let's find inspiration. I don't think it's on the internet. <laughs> I think it's right here. The universes within universes in that exists within every moment within every step.
I'm going to close with a little piece from Shoto Harada Roshi. If we cannot attain Kencho, if we do not experience enlightenment, it is because we have not made that firm commitment. It is because we have not yet, with total deep determination, taken that sharp stance that will enable us to cut through everything that comes along. By always moving according to our surroundings, the day-to-day -day conditions, preconceived time limits, and the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we lose our resolve. We do not make the efforts necessary to take our practice to completion. And because we do not make our determination totally firm, we give up in the middle. That is why we do not experience awakening. If we have true bravery and take our practice to its final point, it will work, no matter who it is that is doing it. There is not a single person in this room, in the world, for whom enlightenment is impossible. If we sincerely put our lives on the line, each and every one of us can realize it. Anyone can encounter true mind.